I had a very tough first year of motherhood. My son was born with some pretty serious health problems and he's doing great now. But And then I lost my job when he was six months old. And I I really felt like such a professional failure because I felt like if I worked hard and I raised my hand and I and I sort of tried my hardest, like nothing, I really felt like the doctrine of lean in was not, that nothing was going to hold me back. But as I started researching and reporting about working motherhood, I really realized that, you know, so many mothers feel like failures when really there's so little that supports mothers in the workplace and there's so much bias against mothers. So that has really led me to understand that in America, All the mothers feel like failures, but really it's America that's failing us. You just heard from Catherine Goldstein, journalist and the creator and host of the Double Shift podcast. She runs Double Shift Productions as an independent journalism company. She is an award-winning journalist and a 2017 Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, and she is an expert on working mothers. Her track record for conversation-setting work includes a few viral op-eds that you may have heard of. She wrote the viral New York Times piece, The Open Secret of Anti-Mom Bias in the Workplace. And she is also the author of the Vox piece, I Was a Sheryl Sandberg Superfan, Then Her Lean-In Advice Failed Me. You can read one of her latest pieces in The Guardian called American Moms, Let's Stop Feeling Guilty and Start getting mad. She lives in Durham, North Carolina, and she is the mother to a three-year-old son. Today, I bring her on the show to talk about her own side of the story, her experience becoming a mother, and also her work experience in moving from a long career in journalism towards entrepreneurship. She is in the early stages of building the Double Shift Productions as an independent journalism company. Also, a quick note from the producer, that's me, before we get into the show, we had a lot of Wi-Fi and technical issues during the production of this episode, and then the battery pack ran out on the microphone, and then there was this weird scratching sound when we, it took us a while to figure it out. It was a sweater that kept rubbing up against the microphone. Some days we do these interviews for Startup Pregnant all in one take. This one was not like done like that. It took us a number of takes to get it and a lot of dropped calls. So we get cut off in a couple of places during this conversation and you will hear me jump in in post-production and let you know that it wasn't that we stopped talking, we got cut off and I stitched this conversation back together because it is such a good one. So bear with us during a couple of thumps and bumps as we go through this episode. Catherine is incredible. Her work is really important, as with everyone I interview on this podcast. You can listen to her new podcast, The Double Shift, which just came out in 2019. And join us for our conversation with Catherine Goldstein today. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. If you have not checked out our mini books yet, go check them out. We have five mini books for parents, entrepreneurs, and mothers that we are making here at Startup Pregnant. We have the Parenting Reading List, which is if you are busy but you want to know what books I'm reading on parenting, I do this thing where I write a little summary of every book that I've read, and I take notes, and you can just go read my notes. You don't have to read the whole book. 
from there, if there's a book that catches your interest, you can go get the books that you want, but you don't have to read every single book. I'm a big geek and I've done that for you. I also have the pregnancy reading list. Surprise, surprise. That's the same. I take a whole bunch of notes on books and I put them into one book just for you. So that's the parenting reading list and the pregnancy reading list. Both are mini books. They're short. They're not long. And you can skim them and flip them as a Kindle or a PDF or whatever way that you want to read it. I also have three other books. One of them is called Pregnancy Affirmations, and that is for people who are pregnant and want to get some good words in your mind. I reached out and interviewed a whole bunch of people and asked them for their favorite mantras and affirmations. So check that out if you want. There are two more, including the Startup Mama profiles and my favorite, Sticky Situations, which is all about how to get out of sticky situations. If you want to check out any of these mini books, go to startuppregnant.com slash mini books to check them out. We are releasing them throughout 2019. And if you are on our email list, you get a first preview. And I often give out coupons for free copies of these books. We've got five mini books. They're over at startuppregnant.com slash mini books. And the link is in the show notes. If you want to scroll into the show notes and check it out, or go to our website, startuppregnant.com and look for mini books and you will get them. Everyone, I am so excited. Today we get to have Katherine Goldstein on the show. She is a journalist and a founder of The Double Shift, which is a reported narrative podcast about a new generation of working mothers. It's amazing. I highly recommend you go listen to it. Katherine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, my first favorite question to ask all of my guests is, what time did you wake up this morning and what was the first thing that you did? I woke up this morning at 6 a.m. and the first thing I did was go take some Advil because I have a terrible sore throat and a terrible virus that I contracted from my child. So um, it was a rough, it was definitely um, our whole family has been struggling with some late or springtime viral crud. And so uh, the first thing I did this morning was some hot water and <laughs> lemon and Advil. And then, you know, the day just really got so much better from there. <laughs> Modern medicine is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, your sick toddlers are like walking viruses. I know. And my son hadn't been sick. We moved to North Carolina about a year ago. And he hadn't, this is this was the first time he'd been sick home from school in an entire year. And I was like, oh, we left New York City. We got rid of all the germs. And then we just like got hit with a whopper. So the worst. How old is your son? He is three and a half. Three and a half. What are the threes like? Um, I think like the term three-nager really kind of sums sums it up. Like just like really uh, lots of opinions, um, like really inter- sometimes coming up with really interesting complex ideas and then also sometimes behaving like an irrational crazed animal. I mean, that's basically <laughs> how I'd sum it up so far. Uh, my mother-in-law says, yeah, in our day, we called it the trying threes. And I was like, oh, goody, <laughs> that's coming. My, my yes. boy is going to turn three in a couple months here. Yes. So I want to start the conversation with you today, um, going back in time a little bit, back to a day when 
you found out you were pregnant. I heard this story from you on the podcast, and you talked about being in the middle of a really big professional dream. You were building a podcast for working mothers. You were going for it. You had all of this ahead of you, right? And you found out you were pregnant. And there's a quote in this episode, and listeners, I'll I'll link it up for you in the show notes, where you say, it would be ridiculous for a project about working moms to be jeopardized by getting pregnant. But then you were also very real and open about how hard it was and everything that was going on. Can you take us back in time? Tell us, was this your first pregnancy? Did you know that you wanted to get pregnant? So the story that you're referencing, yes, it's in our April uh, 8th episode. And the the double shift is really all about reported and narrated stories from working mothers all over the country. And we've we've told stories from a really, really wide range of people, from sex workers to politicians to musicians. And then our fifth episode is about me. So what happened, how how I ended coming to tell this story is that I was creating these audio diaries um, to sort of doc as I learned how to do audio work and ended up sort of recording observations and and telling different stories about my own life, most of which were not very interesting. But it I ended up sort of recording these moments of learning that I was pregnant, and um, this was this wasn't a total shock. I mean, I know where babies come from. Um, I was already a mother at the time, so I had a two and a half. My son was two and a half at the time, and you know, part of our family life plan was that we were going to, we'd been living in New York and we decided that we were ready for a change and we wanted an easier and less expensive life. And and sort of part of the life plan was maybe if we had more space and less expense, like maybe a second child would be in the cards for us. So that was something that my husband and I had talked about, um, but it felt like it came at a really unexpected time and it felt like it came at a really complicated time for me. So because we had just moved to this new city and I was pursuing um, this big professional dream of making the Double Shift podcast. So as listeners can hear, I have these sort of very real and unfiltered reactions to what that all means. And part of the reason that I was so nervous about this was because I study what working mothers face for a living and I report on it and I've heard so many stories and there's a lot of really bad behavior in the world. And so in some ways I think of it as I was kind of like a doctor who was like afraid to go to the hospital. Like I was a working mother myself and was afraid about being pregnant again and trying to do something big professionally because of everything I know about how hard that is through my reporting and research. It's like you knew too much almost. Yes, like, basically. Yeah. So what happened? So at the start of this this episode, I find out I'm pregnant. I'm also getting a, a deal to pilot the double shift with a really big podcast company. And then what ultimately happens is the podcast company turns me down and then I have a miscarriage. <laughs> so it is a really a big roller coaster in terms of my own feelings of success and ambition and feelings about personal failure and feelings of like things not working out. But ultimately, I think like the reason I wanted to share the story was really about like, I really believe in three dimensional portraits of motherhood. And I felt like I had an opportunity to share those kinds of share that three dimensional experience myself that doesn't fall into like tidy categories where every pregnancy is like, 
a miraculous joy of a blessing or it's a total disaster. Like I felt like somewhere in the middle about the pregnancy, but I also felt extremely devastated when I had the miscarriage. And so I went on to make, I think that the episode ends with some hope because I I didn't give up on making the double shift. And that's the show that I've, I've put out. And I really sort of kept going with my professional dreams, even though I had had a very sort of rocky time last year with sort of balance, which sort of thinking about my life and my future and sort of how I define professional and personal happiness and success. So in this story, you say, I feel really haunted by the fact that something went wrong two weeks ago, and I didn't even know. And I want to ask you about miscarriage. Can you share a little bit about your experience with miscarriage, but also about the kind of cultural consensus or cultural stories around miscarriage that we're getting wrong or that we can improve somehow? Yeah. So I think that there is a general cultural consensus that miscarriage is a very sad and very personal thing that really should be kept sort of within a family or a couple and shouldn't be discussed because there's something sort of shameful or distasteful about it and that we shouldn't necessarily we we don't have a lot of language and support for talking about miscarriage and sort of being able to be open and honest and really have open dialogues with people about miscarriage and I think women are starting to have those conversations uh, with each other a lot more and I think that, you know, sometimes I think in my experience and I think other women have shared that, you know, if they start to tell people that they had a miscarriage, like they soon learn that there's many other women who said, oh, I, I've had a miscarriage too. But I don't think that the, it's usually this, I think that miscarriage is still a very isolating experience. And there's usually a feeling of really going through things alone unless you really choose to reach out to people. Um, it's not something that we have any sort of ceremony for or ways to sort of mark in our culture. There aren't rituals or sort of cultural ways we support women and families going through this or find closure. And so I definitely feel like there's a lot more work to not only just tell more stories about it so people don't feel alone, but also, you know, just challenging the idea that it's something that needs to be silent and private and that there's also, you know, just many shades of nuance in the experience of miscarriage. In my experience, I, you know, I think a lot of women feel really guilty that, that they must have done something wrong um, to cause their miscarriage. But my, I, I didn't feel like that. I more felt like as a mother, I should have known that there was something wrong with the pregnancy and that I should have had some sort of intuition and that like really bothered me. So everyone has their own experience. And I think we just need more conversation and narratives available um, to talk about those things. Do you have an idea for what that would look like? Because I've been, ever since I heard your podcast and I have been reading your work, I've been thinking, like, what does it look like to have a, a positive storytelling culture around the space of first one in three, one in four, one in five pregnancies will will end in a miscarriage because that's how pregnancy works. And also that space between miscarriage and whatever is next. Do you have any fantasies or stories or ideas about what that space could look like? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I do feel like when we do hear about miscarriage, a lot of times it's still in the context of this happened to me, but I went on to have another child, so everything was great. Right, right. It's the retroactive storytelling. 
So listener, it's at this point when our Skype call drops for maybe the seventh time. And we have had such a time of getting connected on this call that we both start laughing. We're halfway into the interview and then Catherine laughs. The battery on her microphone went out. So my, um, so I'm so sorry, Sarah. So my recorder, the battery just died. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so let me change the battery. Okay, great. So then I'll send you both files. Hold on. <laughs> we're we're just killing it today. <laughs> You've listened to any of the episodes, but uh, the one I, I did with Sarah Lacey uh, is oh, seven Skype files stitched together. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Okay, so where were we? We were talking about miscarriage. Yeah, so I think that a lot of times when we talk about miscarriage, we want to still present it in a way that's palatable for people. So we want to present it in a way that this really tough and sad thing happened, but I went on to have a child and everything is great. It was all worth it. I think that like um, one of the ways that we gloss over the difficulties of experience for women and mothers is to sort of say like, I went through XYZ trauma, but in the end, I had a baby, so it's all worth it. And I think that that's a very monochromatic way of painting the experience and sort of tells women that it doesn't matter what you go through as long as it's in service of having a child or because you ultimately have a child, like you're not allowed to complain or say something was difficult or terrible or traumatic as long as, you know, you have a healthy baby. And I I really reject those kinds of ideas that there need to just be these one this one kind of narrative and that it's all in service of if you end up having a baby then it's all okay like i think we need to just sit with the difficulty and sometimes the ugliness and the the pain of what it means to be a human woman in this world amazing bravo and i want to quote you on that i think that space that you're talking about the difficulty the difficult things we always tend to put a like and then the glass slipper, right? And then their fairy tale ending. Like it's okay if we tell the stories as long as there's a positive spin. And just like you're saying, as long as we've got a baby at the end. And honestly, that's not true. What you go through matters. What a woman experiences matters. And if you don't get a baby at the end of it, it's also something that happens and we should be talking about and supporting each other through. So it's a very weird and warped sense of like what stories are okay to tell and what stories aren't okay to tell. Totally. And I think that there's um, a lot of pressure for mothers to put a bow on their experience. And I'm all about taking the bows off and, and, you know, just really trying to be honest about those things. And, you know, I think like, as I um, sort of process my own feelings about miscarriage and doing um, research and reporting, like I found that other cultures do have ways of talking about miscarriage, like there's a Japanese tradition where they create little dolls to put in temple shrines to sort of honor like miscarried babies and stillbirths. And like, so there are other cultures that have thought about this as a a rite of passage and an experience, but American Western culture is not, or is not really one of them. So I think sort of talking about those and, and the rituals and the ways that we can help people move on and heal from that, I think is really powerful. And just is something that it's also really complicated. And I touch on this a lot in the episode, in the context of who we are professionally, and who we are in terms of what we want our whole lives to look like. And so I just think that talking about miscarriage is something that where people still feel like it's, 
it's too vulnerable or it's too um, personal to share. And I hope that, you know, we can come up with more language and community around that experience. I couldn't agree more. I have a I have a friend who uh, went through a pregnancy that ended up being non-viable. And the distance between finding out that the pregnancy was not going to work out and the time when she had to get scheduled for a DNC, which is dilation and cutation, you know this, but for listeners, it's a surgery to open up your cervix, get inside your uterus, and then take out whatever contents are in there. It was two weeks. She had to wait. And she mm-hmm. had tissue inside of her that was not going to turn into a baby. It had died already. And she had to go through a period of time where she was living with that. And she said it was one of the loneliest, heartbreaking times of her life because not just because of what was happening, the unrealized promises, the unrealized dreams, the hopefulness, but because of how few people were talking about it and how few people she had in her life to support her through it. And, you know, I think one of the experiences that I had that really made me think is that I felt like I got great medical care, really compassionate experiences at the hospital with doctors. And, you know, I feel like I had a very sort of privileged experience with that. Like, um, I think there's a lot of women who, for whatever reason, if their pregnancy is, they have a miscarriage or they choose to not continue a pregnancy for whatever reason, you know, I'm a white and married mother, so I'm the person who deserves pity and compassion. And I, I, it made me think about the women who go through similar reproductive challenges or, you know, decide to have abortions or whatever their life choices are who don't get that excellent medical care or that compassion or that those hugs from the nurses or those, you know, feelings of support from their medical care team. So I think it, it really also made me really feel connected to people who have a wide wide range of reproductive experiences and challenges that I hadn't really connected to or thought about before. Mm. And didn't you get a a bill for this as well? <laughs> yes, I did get a bill and it's funny I included that in an article that I wrote but I think I've blocked it out of my memory because it made me so mad. So you probably more recently read it and can rem- remind me it what like it was. A, it was like two thousand. It was like between two thousand and twenty five hundred dollars. You got this bill. Yes. Your insurance covered all the things, but your out of pocket expense was still about twenty five hundred dollars. And I yes. was just, I like wanted to throw something across the room because here you are wanting to get pregnant. This is a wanted pregnancy. You thought it was going to be, you know, going down the path of ending in a child towards the thing that you were attempting to do. And yet they charged you to, oh, I can't. Catherine, I don't have words right now. (laughs) It's funny. Yes, I put that in an article and I literally, yeah, it was so like white rage inducing that I just like had to stop thinking about it because I couldn't continue to function. But yes, so we, again, I have many privileges in my experience. I have health insurance, but health insurance in this country is a disgrace. And, you know, our out-of-pocket expenses were over $2,000 for having a DNC for a miscarriage. And like, even though that was a, a shock, like we are financially, we're able to pay that. And I just like talk about adding insult to injury of someone who's hoping for a baby and then has this bill. And if they can't afford to pay, like think about that added stress and pain. So just that's another way that I think there's so much that needs to change about (laughs) women's health in this country. Yes. Policy, advocacy, healthcare, like it's just such an entangled system. 
So here our call fails one more time, and it's like it always happens right in the middle of the most important topics, right? Miscarriage, healthcare, things that matter to women's health. It's not lost on me that we are struggling to have this conversation. Seems like a little bit of a metaphor. Okay, so this brings me to a really interesting point and something you've written a lot about, which is about the motherhood bias. There's so much open, casual discrimination against women. You wrote this piece on the New York Times, The Open Secret of Anti-Mom Bias at Work. Can you talk about what the motherhood bias is? So um, basically, mothers are systemically discriminated against in the workplace. And that can take a lot of different forms. So one form of discrimination is, so being a mother is not a protected class of people um, in terms of job discrimination, but pregnancy discrimination is people is something that is a legal term for a group of people who are protected. And um, also some when you have family responsibilities discrimination, that people are discriminated against based on their caretaking responsibilities. So in my reporting, I've heard probably hundreds of stories of mothers being sort of eased out of jobs, denied promotions, not offered opportunities others are offered, and also judged more harshly for the same behavior in the workplace. Like, And there's tons of research and data around this. And this has a huge economic impact. So if you have a baby between the ages of 25 to 35, which it turns out are your prime childbearing years, your earnings never recover. And that's not true for dads. So basically, I think motherhood, because of the way we don't support it in workplaces, through family leave and flexible work, but also through active discrimination, actually really holds women back in sort of reaching to the highest levels of their profession. It holds us back in terms of earning power. And I think that for a long time, this has been very open and casual and not really seen as a problem or even addressed. And I think that in the last year since I wrote that article, we're seeing a lot more conversation about it and a lot more challenging of those norms that it's okay to you know, assume a mom doesn't want to go on a business trip because she's a mom or pass a mother over for a promotion because you assume she would want to be spending more time with her kids. Like that stuff is illegal. And I think we're having, we're in a moment that there's a lot more consciousness going on about that. What do you think it's going to take to shift these workplaces? And maybe I'll plant that seed and we can address that question in just a little bit because I, I also want to ask you about, and I think this will take us there. So let me let me take us sideways first and then we'll get back there. Let's talk about lean in and about women and about leaning into the workplace and about your work and your writing on how your views on women in the workplaces have changed. Because I think it has a lot to do with this anti-mom bias that you're talking about. Yes. So I have wrote an article for Vox about basically how I was a 20-something hard-charging professional who was all in on Lean In. And I read the book and I really saw it as like a blueprint for my life. And I even created a lean in circle and I wrote about it uh, for Slate where I worked at the time. And I really felt like, you know, there was a lot of criticisms of the book when it came out, but I really felt like, you know, it didn't speak to every woman's circumstance, but I felt very strongly that it spoke to my circumstance. And then in my early 30s, I was given an opportunity to take a really big new job. And I knew I wanted to become a mother soon. But I kind of was like, you know what, this is what lean in is all about. Like you go for it and you don't hold yourself back just because you want to be a mother. And I had a very tough first year of motherhood. My son was born with some pretty serious 
health problems and he's doing great now. But And I, then I lost my job when he was six months old. And I, I really felt like a, such a professional failure because I felt like if I worked hard and I raised my hand and I and I sort of tried my hardest, like nothing, I really felt like the doctrine of lean in was not, that nothing was going to hold me back. But as I started researching and reporting about working motherhood, I really realized that, you know, so many mothers feel like failures when really there's so little that supports mothers in the workplace and there's so much bias against mothers. So that has really led me to understand that in America, all the mothers feel like failures, but really it's America that's failing us. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying right now is going to blow open the minds of so many people listening because so often people feel like if they lean in a little bit harder, they work a little bit harder. I know I felt this way when I had my first child. I thought, well, I'm really ambitious and I'm driven. And if I just work harder or I'm more efficient or I'm more strategic, it'll all work out. And it's a rough realization to come to that you realize it's not me. It's not personal. I've been gaslit in some ways. And believing that it's my fault. And if I just work a little harder, it, we can somehow patch this all together and quote unquote, have it all. Your episode is called, what is it called? Not having it all? On not having it all? On not having it all. Yeah. So basically, the people in power in this country want mothers to feel guilty <laughs> and want mothers to feel like if we you just tried harder, then everything would be better. Because that way, like it's all about personal responsibility. It's not about thinking about comprehensive family leave. It's not thinking about flexible work. It's not thinking about anything that any of the status quo changing. If mothers just feel like, you know, they don't want to say anything because they don't want to look like they're a failure or, you know, if they were just disciplined and got up at five in the morning, then they'd be able to make it all work. Fuck that. I do not believe in telling mothers to get up at five in the morning. I believe that systems need to change. I think mothers can't change anymore. We have to change our workplaces and we have to change our culture and society. And I'm tired of all of the like culture in the media that just tells mothers there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with us. It's the culture that's broken. I want to ask you then what you think about the term self-care. Huh. Oh, good. Yay. <laughs> I'm glad you asked me about this term self-care. So I have somewhat unconventional views on self-care. <laughs> so I believe that self-care is very important, but it has been sort of commodified into like, oh, if you get a massage and spend money on a massage, then that's going to make your life better. And like, I love a massage. Massages are great. But I'm actually much more interested in like existential self-care. And I think that the, and what I mean by that is that like, I think the most amazing self-care you can do for yourself is to stand up for yourself. Nothing makes you feel better than standing up for yourself, whether that's at work, whether that's in your relationships at home, that, that often a lot of research and studies show are unequal between um, men and women when they have kids. And I think like also getting in touch with your anger and expressing that is like one of the highest forms of self-care. So I actually think that I'm all about sort of putting your self-care priorities in the mix. But I think that our culture has sort of fetishized this the, the spa version of self-care. And I'm much more interested in the existential version of self-care. This is so interesting. So I was making the link before when you were talking about the system is broken, not the mom. And I said, well, the, to me, self-care is always placing the burden back on the person to whom the burden shouldn't be on, right? The mom, the moms out there, self-care is just another 
to-do list item. It's like, hey, here's one more thing to add to your pile when actually it would be nice if we could fix the patriarchy in our broken society and then maybe I wouldn't need as much of this commercialized, commoditized self-care. But I love where you took this and you can't see me, everyone, but I was like kind of dancing around while you were talking, like cheering you on, <laughs> just being like, yes, existential self-care. Um, <laughs> yeah, because- I'm all about it. I feel like I'm like one of the only people out there talking about that. So I get asked about self-care a fair amount. So I'm just going to preach the gospel of existential self-care. Like, and I think that like when you stand up for yourself, it like it doesn't it, it makes it like and this is also about in personal relationships too. This isn't just about workplaces, but I think it makes fitting those other things in and like asserting your right to have human needs like less of a to-do list item and just more of who you are. Yes, asserting your right to have human needs is something that sadly we should not have to do, but we do have to do. So Yeah. I love to I want to like emphasize I would be highlighting underscoring this and all the things circling flagging uh anger is self-care. Getting in touch with your anger. What does that look like for you personally? So, that's what does it look like for me personally? So, I have written about how mothers, you know, are very comfortable that we often look at the lens of our experience of motherhood, that we're very comfortable with mothers talking about guilt. And actually, guilt and anger operate in different parts of the brain. So if you are angry about something, you're much more likely to take action. And I think that sort of my whole work life is an extension of my anger at how mothers are treated in America. So Basically, I believe I have the unique ability to do some powerful storytelling to change the conversation around working motherhood in America. And that absolutely energizes me every day. But a lot of that is absolutely rooted in like anger and disgust and just frustration at how marginalized mothers are in this country. So um, I feel like I've been able to channel that productively into my work. And I'm very fortunate to have work that feels like a calling to me. But I think that for me, that anger has been channeled into this, the Double Shift podcast, which I think is actually not a particularly angry show in any way. But I feel like, you know, there's so many. And I think that I want to also just clarify a little bit. There's a lot of outrage culture right now because there's so many crazy things going on in the news. And the political system is so awful that you can be in an outrage loop. But what I'm talking about is really like something that different than sort of like a Facebook outrage um, machine. What I'm talking about is really sort of getting in touch with your feelings of injustice and doing something about it rather than just like yelling at the computer and like your uncle on Facebook. So (laughs) I I, I hope that that's sort of coming through. Mm, It definitely is. This idea that your whole work life is an extension of your anger is so powerful. And I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think women often mask rage and anger, it masquerades as something else, sadness, tiredness, fatigue, lots of coffee drinking, like it can be hard to find depression, yes, guilt, right? It can be hard to touch into like, oh, the thing I'm actually feeling is angry, because women being angry is not something that is (laughs) in our cultural lexicon, necessarily, as a as a place of power and uh, emotional resonance. So how do you find it? How do you get in touch with it? And I'm asking this as kind of like an open conversation because it's something I deal with and try to find. Like, how do I find my angry and how do I communicate it and talk about it? And I'm sure that people listening would be really fascinated by this as well. Do you have thoughts on this? 
So um, I think that to also clarify, I think that there's there is a bunch of interesting books going that have come out um, about women and anger. Rebecca Traitzer wrote one of them that I, was very influential in my thinking. But in addition to like us not being comfortable with women expressing anger, we are so deeply uncomfortable with mothers expressing anger. It is like if we're like sort of uncomfortable with women, like mothers expressing anger is like planet Mars insanity in this culture. So I, I think like we have first have to recognize that this is tough for people and we've been conditioned away from this. But I think like the way to think about this is when you're feeling those other range of emotions, is there a way to sort of like dig under? Like if you're if you're feeling like I'm feeling really sad because I missed my kids' school play for the third time in a row and I feel so guilty and I feel like I'm a bad mom. So is that is that that you really feel guilty or is it that you're angry that you have a really inflexible boss who's always breathing down your neck and doesn't like allow you to prioritize your time is that what you're angry about like i think that sometimes there's ways to try to scratch beneath the surface of what we're comfortable with the narratives around and try to get at what there's what the underlying rage could be at the situation hmm. yes yes amen when did you first become interested in studying and researching motherhood and working moms? Was that something you were always interested in or did this have a critical inflection point for you in your career? It wasn't something I was always interested in. So I've been an, a journalist for about 12 years and I got interested in and I was in newsroom management and strategy and I was like a early like internet worker at the Huffington Post. And I was sort of very interested in sort of like big picture news stuff. I had never written about or was super focused on gender issues. And becoming a mother absolutely opened my eyes to these things. And some of my own tough experiences the first year of my son's life made me really interested in it. And I was then very fortunate to get a Neiman Journalism Fellowship where I spent a year at Harvard. And during that time, I started to look at mothers in newsrooms and do some really interesting research around that. And that really showed me how much more work there was to do on these topics. And it, it gave me the space to sort of do like a very long um, narrative research-based journalism project around that. And and it might, I knew that I had in journalistic terms, like found my story. And, uh, and so I've sort of been pursuing that, um, all the aspects of that story for the last, you know, two years. What was the focus of your study at the Neiman Journalism Lab? So it was about, so it was called my, it, it culminated in a like 7,000 word uh, cover story called Where Are the Mothers? And it was all about the idea of if newsrooms want to retain and attract a new generation of talent, they have to think critically about how to support mothers in the newsroom. So I interviewed dozens of women and mothers who work in newsrooms and really made a lot of policy recommendations for newsrooms because I think newsrooms especially, if we don't have mothers in newsrooms, that absolutely affects what stories are told, what kind of coverage we have, whose who's narratives and what issues are seen as valuable. And so I believe mothers are a really important part of diverse news coverage. And so 
there was a lot of uh, I did a lot of research and, and, and found a lot of interesting policies that are actually applicable to tons of other industries as well. And one one thing that was really heartening was that some others at the Boston Globe actually used the the article as a blueprint to advocate for better family leave. So people are actually using that reporting to sort of make their newsrooms better. And so that it was is also really encouraging to me. Mm, that is so fascinating because one of the things that I keep seeing is, and and one of the ways that you're pioneering a lot of this journalism is mothers are are often sold to, like they're seen as a market, but they're not talked about authentically or honestly. Like it's, the people are less interested, at least for the last few decades, about what does a mother's life actually look like, and more interested in selling them an idea and also giving them a whole bunch of mom guilt. And I I am so fascinated with your work in reporting on. On these questions, especially this question, like, where are the mothers? Because sometimes I think that if if you walk into a job when you're 22, and there are zero mothers there, that should be a huge red flag that this is probably a strange, perverse, and maybe even toxic workplace. I think that's a, a very accurate assessment. I think that, you know, my job when I was 24 had no mothers, and it was, it was a pretty crazy workplace. And And I think that but that, you know, that didn't bother me at the time um, because I, I had a very primitive view of what workplaces should be and, you know, workplace policies and stuff like that. But I hope that all of this just injects a lot more thinking about workplaces. And, you know, as I was creating this podcast, I had a really hard time getting people to understand that the show was not about parenting because people couldn't understand that there could be a whole show about mothers that wasn't about kids. Because basically, we see mothers only as vectors for children, not as individuals with their own identities. And so one of the very gratifying things that have has happened with the show so far is people are getting, no one thinks that after they've listened to the show, everyone's like, oh, I get it. It's about the mothers. They're, they have interesting <laughs> stories themselves. The um, people. people. Yeah, the people. And I think that you're totally right. Like People are so interested in getting mothers to spend money on things and you know, to market to mothers. And there's been so little interest in what mothers actually care about beyond their children. And so I'm, I am, I am here to change that. So one of the things that I'm really appreciative of the work that you do is, is that you point a light on mothers being whole people, and people beyond their children's lives, working, intellectual, curious, creative people. And I want to invert the question and ask you for your theories, who benefits and why do they benefit if we take and construct a story around motherhood that where they have to stay home and be only children makers? I mean, I think that that serves a very like patriarchal view that women don't truly belong in other spheres. And many, many women choose to stay home for some or all of all of their children's lives, but very few women are just never returned to the workplace. And I think that if we can make workplaces much more holistic and flexible, we're going to harness so much more creative and economic potential. And I think like that's one of the things that I like to emphasize in my work, it, that it's not about being nice to moms or special treatment for moms. It's about having better workplaces. And like I think that actually fits in with plenty of capitalist ideas about productivity and creativity. So I think that there's a lot of how I see workplaces that it doesn't just have to be about, you know, you need to give moms special benefits. I think 
treating moms well and welcoming moms into the workplace, it benefits everybody. What's next for you? What are you building and where are you headed? Those are great questions. If you want to do this interview again in three months, maybe I'll have different answers. Um, (laughs) So right now, um, my whole life from morning till night is in support of the Double Shift podcast. So we've you know, we've about halfway through our first season. And, you know, it's basically a startup. We're an independent podcast, which is becoming increasingly rare. And we are mainly funded by grants and some advertising. And so our podcasts take a lot of time and energy and reporting and resources to make. So I've, we've been grant funded, and I'm trying to think I'm going to take the summer off to from not, I'm not going to the beach all summer, but I'm taking the summer <laughs> off from producing the podcast to try to think about what the big picture is for the podcast. And just because I know that the podcast in a short amount of time, I think, is starting to make a mark and speaking to people in powerful ways. And I need to figure out how to make it personally and financially sustainable for me. Um, and I don't feel like I have a lot of great models for how to run this small media company in this way. So as a as a feminist entrepreneur and someone who I'm not trying to get venture money, I'm I'm not part of a big company that can just bankroll the show for a couple of seasons until it, you know, is profitable. So I have some like pretty tough entrepreneurial challenges ahead and I have to raise more money mostly probably through foundations. Um, I'm going to spend some time on that this summer as well. So if any startup pregnant listeners have any advice for me, uh, I feel like there might be a good community of uh, entrepreneurs and funders out who are listening. Maybe they want to send me an email. <laughs> yes. Wait, so take us behind the scenes if you don't mind, because you've been a journalist for 12 years and now you're becoming an entrepreneur and you've been yeah. building this podcast and this movement. How have you been funding the podcast and what has that looked like? So I funded it through grants. So I have grants that are paying the people that work on the podcast. And I think that the issue has been every like any, every entrepreneur will tell you and anyone doing a big project like this, everything is like more expensive and taking longer than I thought. <laughs> so like, <laughs> so it's yep. like, yeah, I had this like great budget and I was going to pay myself X amount. And so like, I really believe in paying people fairly. I don't believe in asking especially women to work for free or to, you know, give me things for free because I'm doing something that's valuable. Like I really believe in those tenets. But I think the problem is that I've been able to apply that to everyone except myself. So I have to sort of figure out like continue to sort of raise money through grants. And we're also done really well with our advertising and we're going to be making money through advertising. Um, And we're also looking into launching a membership program as well. So these are all just like very big questions about you know, when you start a business, I'm not in the double shift for the riches, but I am interested in like being paid fairly for my work as a journalist. So I'm trying to sort of figure out all that kind of complicated funding stuff. And, you know, most people who start a business, they don't make money their first year. And that's like part of what business is. So I'm funding it through grants and grants are going to probably continue to be an important part of our budget for the next couple of years. And the funding is to pay the people who edit and produce the show and all the research and all of that. But then you're not paying yourself yet. I mean, there's been some payments, but I would not. I'm probably (laughs) I'm I'm tracking to have made more money my first year out of college as a catering waitress. (laughs) 
than I am tracking to make this year. But yeah, so trying to sort of figure out what that all and that's and I'm very fortunate to be in that position right now. um, But that's not like super sustainable long term. So I have to sort of figure out all of those those pieces. And this is, I absolutely believe that the double shift is part of a larger movement and trying to, but then inserting capitalism upon, uh, on top of that is just really complicated. <laughs> so yeah, it's really, yeah. it's really challenging and complicated. One of my best friends and I, we talk like every week about the work that matters and needs to be built in the world. And then our, our like dying refrain is, but what is the business model? <laughs> Right. And, you know, part of the reason that so we're sort of a profit nonprofit hybrid. So we're able to accept grants and nonprofit donations through a fiscal sponsor, but we do have profit making activities. And, you know, that's one of the things that's so frustrating, I think, about capitalism and sort of a male dominated way of looking at things like I think that there's a lot of people who see the value of this work. And I'm not, you know, interested in taking investment, because I'm not trying to create a company that has a 10x return. Like, that's not what I'm doing. And that's not the value of this. And so a lot of times to get people interested in what you're doing, you're supposed to promise these very sort of stereotypical and male dominated ways of running a business. And I refuse to do that. So that's another part of like feeling like I'm a little bit not at sea, but like fig- really like getting figuring out what this all looks like. And I think I'm actually really good at business, but I don't feel like I'm great at finance. Like I like I've had like moments of like crying in front of QuickBooks, but mm. I feel like I actually have a good nose for like actual business opportunities. So it's it's a lo- there's a lot of learning going on right now. Oh, it's the steepest learning curve. So how can we help you, the women listening, the people who have started pregnant, me personally? What does it look like to support the double shift? And what would it look like for the double shift to be like wildly successful? So that's amazing. And you know, one of the hardest things I think for me and for so many mothers is to ask for and accept help. So I found that mm-hmm. in my reporting and I'm practicing that in my own life. And so this is a really good public challenge right now for me to answer you because you asked me how you could help me. So listening to the show is number one. So we have just launched a membership program for the double shift. And the double shift, we're asking people to become members of the double shift um, on a monthly basis to because in the belief that this journalism matters and that you support feminist organizations and you want these stories out in the world. So becoming a member of the Double Shift um, on a reoccurring uh, monthly donation is hugely important to us. And it also helps us show funders that it's not just people downloading, but that people believe in this mission and that this that, that this journalism is meaningful enough for people to want to pay money for because a lot of journalism is important, but a lot of people aren't willing to pay money for it. So that is so hugely helpful for us in, um, you know, getting to a second season and and making this a sustainable operation. And then if there's any Startup Pregnant listeners who work with philanthropists or on the board of foundations or are interested in nonprofit donations to the Double Shift, email me. That is all very helpful as we sort of think about what's next for the show. That's so important because we're we're at a moment for people listening. We're at a moment in media and um, news reporting and journalism that's really really interesting because we've all been raised with the idea that information and news should be free. 
So yeah. we just kind of go and we blindly consume things. And then people ask us to pay a dollar here, five dollars there. You'll see it on Medium, which is just launched the like buy a membership or a subscription, become a founding member, I think is what it was. And Wired has a paywall and the New York Times has a paywall. And then there are things like Patreon that are going up and people are starting to fund backers. And, and, and the question is, like, how do we change people's relationship to say, Oh, you know what? It's worth paying for good content and good stories. And one of the things, um, people listening that's so, so important for Catherine, for myself, for other people is that it actually makes a huge difference. Uh, sometimes Absolutely. $400 a month is that's about the cost it takes for me to pay my editor and. 400 people listening who each pay a dollar is a huge part of feminist activism. So if you believe in things like this, I always try to um, go support the people I want to hear more from with a dollar a month as my contribution, because we are scrappy. We are a startup. We don't have the ability to spend a tremendous amount of money everywhere, but I want to make a difference so that I can see more of the work in the world. So yeah, these are big problems you're trying to solve, Catherine, and tackle. What's it like emotionally? I'm just here in my basement in North Carolina tackling them all. <laughs> tackling them all. Well, yeah. I'm in my New York City studio with concrete walls and bad internet, so. <laughs> yeah, and I and I, I love what you said, Sarah, about, you know, this is, this is part of feminism is to not only say, oh, I like that show or I like this person's work, but we all have to put our money where our mouths are. And I think like that's just a really, and for small organizations like the Double Shift and for Startup Pregnant, like those amounts of money make a difference and they go directly to paying women. It's not like, oh, this is like part of our multi-million dollar budget and this is like basically to pay for like, you know, whatever printing supplies in our whatever. This is absolutely going to women and mothers' salaries. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think like we need to sort of, I think a lot of people are interested in giving to charity and giving money to worthy causes. And I think um, rigorous journalism and voices that you haven't heard before are also worthy causes. So I, I think that I hope that we can continue to sort of change that conversation. So will the double shift after uh, the first season launches, you're taking a break for the summer, will you come back for yes. a second season? Do you not know yet? Should I just have you back on the show and ask you in a couple months? <laughs> you can check in with me. I mean, the plan, I'd like to come back in the fall uh, for a second season. Um, but we haven't, we don't have a date yet set yet for, for coming back. And, you know, the membership drive definitely will help bring it back sooner. But we do have some funding lined up for the second season. But I, I want to just like, get all our funding lined up. So I'm not building the airplane and looking for money as the show is the second season's already launched. So I'm sort of like balancing all of those those issues and trying to create this has been so such an exhilarating experience of doing the first season, but it's been totally crazy. And so I'm trying to create um, an environment that's slightly less insanely difficult for myself for the second season. A hundred percent. I feel like I'm underneath the plane trying to screw on a wheel at all times. So <laughs> yes, I'm right yes. there with you. <laughs> You're like, yes. Are we flying? We're still flying. Are we flying? Yes. I don't know. Still flying. Um, Haven't crashed yet. Yeah. <laughs> for people listening, Catherine is a an award-winning Neiman Journalism fellow who has written incredible work about pregnancy discrimination, about workplace discrimination, about mothers, working mothers in the workplace, and champions causes that all of us um feel passionately about and are living. So where can people find you, Catherine, to follow your work on the internet? And where do you live on your social homes? 
Sure. Um, so the doubleshift.com is a home, a home for all things double shift. And you can subscribe to the double shift wherever you get your podcasts, as they say. And the double shift Instagram is a very fun hotbed of feminist conversation about motherhood, which is very different than other kinds of mom Instagram, in case you haven't noticed. So um, please follow us on Instagram. And um, you can email us at askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. And you can find me at Twitter at K-G-E-E-E. And my work is a double shift. So just you can just just go there. Go find that. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you found this episode useful, valuable, and informative, I have a few more episodes that you might appreciate that talk a little bit more about issues that we brought up today. Go back in time all the way to episode number two for our interview with Annie Dean and looking at how we can design flexible workplaces that make more sense for parents and families. Or if you're fired up, check out episode number 23 with Sarah Lacey of Chairman Mom, where she talks all about overthrowing the patriarchy and why there may be a power or political agenda behind not granting paid leave policies. If you want to dive into more on the conversation about race, social justice, and getting politics into your business and what that looks like, check out episode 36 with Tepsi. Two more that you might like include Planning Ahead for Maternity Leave as an Entrepreneur, episode number 65 with Ariana Taboada. And episode number 75, we talk about what it looks like to transition back to work after a career break with Rita Kakati Shah. Because oftentimes when faced without time or paid leave, you need to plan ahead for your own maternity leave and figure out a way to make it work. That's what Ariana talks about in episode number 65. But sometimes you take a break and it ends up being one or two or three years and you realize, how do I get back into my work life if that's where I am today? Take a listen to episode number 75 if that's you. I will put all of these links into the show notes and you can always find the episode number either by scrolling through your podcast player and looking for the episode number or you can go to startuppregnant.com and then type backslash 065-075-002, whatever the number is that I just listed, enter the three sequence number onto our website and you can find our episodes. If you want to browse through all the episodes we've done, you can go to startuppregnant.com slash archive and see everything that we've put forward and put out to date. Thanks for listening, everyone. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.